0: Is that a public house? Yes, Your Lordship. Are they going in? Yes, Your Lordship. Does that mean the fight's over? No, no, that's just the end of round one.
1: Welcome to season two of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. A quick disclaimer for this episode. For reasons unknown to me, my microphone's recording came out a bit distorted this time around. If you're wondering why I sound a bit crackly, that's why. My apologies for this brief technical lapse. It's September 1919, and Jamie Revenal joins us today to discuss Madame Dewberry. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first proper episode of season two. This is the podcast How Would Emil Subic Do It? Or so the Variety magazine review of Madame Barry's North American premiere would have it. They badly mangled his name in that version, which I find very entertaining and also indicative of the kind of anti-German sentiment that pervaded this premiere. But before we get into that, we have our guest here, Jamie Revenel. Jamie, do you want to introduce yourself? Who are you and what made you want to talk about this biopic that we're discussing today?
0: Hey, Devin. Well, thanks for having me. So first things first, I am Jamie. I am the founder of Cinema from the Spectrum. I'm also a film student over at Sheridan College, currently in my graduating year, because this is my final semester at the moment. I just directed my thesis film. What brought me to talking about uh, Madame de Barry was the fact that, one, it's one of the Lubish films that I haven't seen yet, But as somebody who loves a whole lot of his films, I figured, you know what, why not go ahead and just challenge myself with something that I haven't seen yet. And that's what brought me here. Thanks for having me.
1: This film brings out mixed feelings in me, because on one hand, this is one of the most historically interesting films of this whole podcast. We'll get into that. It is the turning point in Inertz Lubitsch's career. This is the single most consequential film he ever made as far as his own life goes. And it's not even particularly close. But on the other hand, this is his first dreaded biopic. It's also one of the films of this podcast where I had not seen it before embarking on this show. I watched it a few months ago you know, when I was going doing my kind of run through of his Berlin era. If there's any single film that I struggled with in terms of, OK, how do I reconcile this film's historical reputation and contemporaneous response with my own response, you know, a Now, four years later, there's a gap between those two, and I've been thinking about that since watching it. So I'm kind of coming at this from both a place of profound historical interest and aesthetic ambivalence. You just watched this movie. One question I have is your own preconceptions of what a Berlin-era Lubitsch film is. And then Madame Dewberry, where does this fit in with what you were expecting
0: and what did you get? I was expecting something that would at least look quite gorgeous, because I'm going to confess right now, I have not seen quite a lot of Lubitsch's Berlin-era movies. I was thinking that I would expect something that was quite lavish, uh, like along the lines of, say, something like The Smiling Lieutenant or Monte Carlo. And then I came out of this thinking, it's certainly interesting. Would I uh, call it a great movie, though? I I don't know about that. I think it's my least favorite Lubish that I've seen so far. Uh, the Eyes of the Mummy Ma might be, I mean,
1: <laughs> that one uh, I don't recommend. But this one undercut my expectations in a way that this man made seven films in 1919, of which I believe four survive of his 1919 filmography. You have The Oyster Princess, Madame Duberry, The Doll, and Meyer from Berlin. And Of those four, I I mean, I admire from Berlin. It's not great, but this film really, I struggled with it in comparison to his two maximalist comedies of this year, which were The Doll and The Oyster Princess, which are, at this point, my favorite works of this era. They're incredible, lovely works of film form. They're just exuberant. They stand up completely. This film, on the other hand, those two films, the the response paled in comparison to this. I mean, this got rave reviews. This was released in 1919, uh, September 18th, And at its premiere, I believe, or at an early screening, Max Reinhardt, who was Ernst Lubitsch's mentor in the theater world, saw the film and approached Ernst and said, the student has now surpassed the master. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in theater who had quite the stature Max Reinhardt had in Berlin at that time. He was a living legend. To hear that from Max must have been, you know, immensely gratifying for Ernst. And then it gets released in 1920 in the U.S., there are some speed bumps. We'll get into that, but it gets rave reviews. Right? It just oh, uh, yeah. is widely seen as one of the great films of the year. It makes a boatload of money. It actually its success was so profound that it enraged Griffith, and Griffith responded by booking a reissue of Birth of a Nation <laughs> at the Capitol Theater. It played for longer than Passion, but Passion actually outgrossed it in a shorter amount of time. Even with that little stunt he pulled, so. This was the film that kind of built Lubitsch's reputation as the next Griffith. That was what he was seen as, this great director of historical epics, which is obviously this reputation that he still holds today. I mean, we still obviously know Lubitsch just... as primarily a director of historical epics. I mean, everyone remembers uh, Loves of the Pharaoh, don't we? But no, ask anyone who's seen Lubitsch's Berlin films. You can look on Letterboxd for the most popular. Oyster Princess and the doll are, by wide margin, the two most shared, seen, beloved of his Berlin works, and the doll was a flop. And Oyster Princess, I believe, was a success, but it was dwarfed in comparison to Matt and Dewberry. And so my big question is, and this is a rhetorical question because we're obviously going to talk about this, what did audiences in 1919 and especially 1920 in the U.S. see in this? What did this bring to the table that
0: the Griffiths and the Mills of the world were not bringing American audiences? I guess we could start off by the fact that, one, it's extremely lavish in a way that uh, you could expect that Griffith, obviously, his movies look very dirty, whereas this one looks very polished, very clean, and it's just so gorgeous. And I would imagine that audiences needed something that contrasted the fact that Griffith, obviously, when he made Birth of a Nation, it was very incendiary back when it came out. I would imagine they didn't want something like that all the time. Mm -hmm. You also have the whole Birth of a Nation thing, right, where he he makes that film, it's the
1: Biggest film in history that's such a firestorm of controversy. He makes Intolerance, which is, you know, very la- lavish epic. But yeah, as you say, Intolerance kind of has this grit and dirt to it. I mean, the Babylon sets are, you know, it's a crumbling empire. It's not this romantic vision. But in Madame DuBerry, you have Kurt Richter, who is Lubitsch's consistent production designer at this point, going to town with these incredibly lavish sets. A phrase I'm probably going to be using throughout this season is a lot of these films look like birthday cakes. <laughs> I love that. I love the way that sounds. And this is also well-timed because I just read Kristen Thompson's Air Lubitsch Goes to Hollywood, which tracks Lubitsch's formal journey as he makes his transition from Berlin to Hollywood. This film is a great example of the kind of pre-Hollywood influence Berlin school of production design, where it's incredibly ornate. It draws attention to itself. Like, the um, the ornaments and the detail in the film sets are there for their own sake. Like, I mean, I'm looking at a shot right now of uh, Jeanne DuBerry and her kind of entourage in her, quote-unquote, pleasure palace. Throughout, you have—it's distracting how much detail there is in the background. It's gorgeous to look at, and it's not really calibrated, though, to presentation of a story. It's calibrated to, oh my gosh, look at this set. And, again, that, that's not a value judgment. That's not a bad thing or a good thing. I'm not—
0: pro story. It's very lavish. And yes, I, I totally agree. It's what always set apart uh, Lubitsch from most other directors of the period for me, because even when he's making a movie that seems like it's in a contemporary setting, there's still a very lavish quality to them, which you won't be finding in most other filmmakers stuff from the time the movie's released. And I, I think it's important, too, to emphasize in comparison
1: to The Oyster Princess or something that's to come, like his uh, his American silence that are very horny. This film is Comparatively a little buttoned down, but compare this to other historical epics of the era. I mean, the Griffiths and Mills. This is a film that, as Kevin Brownlow puts it, a film where the characters behave like human beings. They are kind of free with their sexuality, especially... Polonegre's Duberry. they're playful. Her character is not this stuffy costume drama archetype. She's this, uh, and uh, I think her character drifts around a lot and we'll get to that, but at her most, I think interesting, she's this incredibly smooth operator where she uses her own charm and body and skills as a socialite to get what she wants and to climb the social ladder. And that kind of frankness and playfulness feels a little bit feels really fresh circa 1919. It stands in stark contrast to the American epics of the era. So I do think that to me does feel like a genuine
0: innovation. Hmm. You noted this in your letterbox review. She's very much a uh, character who is full of contradictions. Oh my yes. <laughs> but I will say that it's the fact that she is a character that always contradicts herself that at least has a very compelling, very entertaining quality to her performance too.
1: Uh She and Yennings, they've been together before in Lubitsch's films uh, and will be together after this. But boy, uh, they are two hams. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. Um, I'm fully pro-ham. I mean, I noticed on my second viewing of this that Negri acts so much with her breathing. You can tell what her character's thinking by how heavy her torso heaves. Is she excited? Is she conniving? Is she scared? Those are all portrayed by... What is the rhythm and meter of her breathing, which I found really, really fun.
0: Lovely (laughs) ham. There is a part of me that wishes that it wasn't a silent movie. Even though I can uh, see her very heavily breathing, I want to actually hear it, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, I mean, she was, again, one of those stars that struggled during the sound era
1: in the U.S. because she has a heavy Polish accent. She's given a tough assignment here because if you see her in something like Carmen, she's very good at building this character who has like one or two specific traits but we run headlong into the biopic problem here right i mean (laughs) it's
0: that this film takes place over the course of decades it's like whenever you're awaking a biopic that takes place over that period of time there's always that problem where it's like a sparks notes version of their story (laughs) and it seems to have been an issue that pervades even today Exactly. It's why I just can't do it with most biopics anymore, especially when most biopics at this point, I just see them come out. I'm thinking this is something that people just want to make to get Oscars. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and, and this, it's so interesting to me that it never changes, right? I mean...
1: The thing about a biopic, I mean, you're seeing for someone from the cradle to the grave, or more more commonly, from the moment they became relevant to the grave. And that's exactly what we have here, right? We have the moment the film starts It basically DuBerry. She starts as a nobody, climbs her way through various stratas of the pre-revolutionary French social world and becomes the mistress of Henry, not Henry, sorry, that's Anna Boleyn, uh, becomes <laughs> the mistress of Louis XV. And so often, for example, there's entire, there's decades that get lost to Ellipse. Um, there's a 15-year gap between two scenes in the film that are played as as if like a character walks out of one room and walks next door. It's like the whole French revolution happens (laughs) Uh, off screen or the everything leading up to it, at least. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so it's fascinating to see the way this film, one, collapses time, but two, the impact, I think, more destructively on all the characters, but especially Dewberry. I mean, she's kind of this babe in the woods at some points you know, naive, hopelessly naive. Then the next scene, she's this incredibly smooth operator manipulating all the men around her (laughs) because she's so good at, she knows exactly what they want and how to get what she wants. And then she'll go from this hopeless romantic later on to this tyrannical queen (laughs) who's like, (laughs) who's, you know, put down, you know, the the heads will roll over this parody song. Negri has to play every single one of those to the hilt. (laughs) Yeah. It isn't that she's like indecisive. She's fully invested in each of those characters in any given
0: scene, but it doesn't add up to a character. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if anything, it just feels like a very flat cardboard cutout. It's just not exactly the sort of thing that I would expect from Lubitsch of all people, I feel.
1: It's so interesting. And I'm sorry for going long on some of these points, but I find this a very interesting period in his career because he's all over the map at this point. I mean, the surviving films that sandwich this are Meyer from Berlin, which is an Adam Sandler vacation comedy starring Ernst. You have The Oyster Princess, which is this over-the-top Ruritanian satire of American industrialists. Then you have The Doll, which is a lo-fi, minimalist, borderline, experimental film, comedy. And then you have two Shakespeare adaptations set in Bavaria. This is all sandwiched between him. It feels like he's trying to poke at the limits of what he's doing, and he has mixed success, right? I think that probably it's not very controversial to say that he had
0: more success artistically in the comedic realm. I would agree with that especially because those are the movies that I feel like I can I can name a lot of those more off the top of my head than I can a lot of these really early ones. <laughs> It's one of those things, too, where, uh, again, we come
1: back to this gap between how they were received at the time, right? I mean, this film and Sumerun and Anna Boleyn and Loves of the Pharaoh were all tremendously, critically well-received. And I only like one of those, and that's Loves of the Pharaoh, because that goes so far into the goofy melodrama. That film, I kind of adore, but it's not great. And in this, it's basically what you're getting is a biopic with all the biopic problems circa 1919 and it's one of those interesting things right where if i'm to, were to approach this film as an academic uh it's fascinating but you know as a biased person born in the year 1990 in the year 2023 now geez Pacific. the mistakes of this film have become so ossified in the biopic as a genre and the things that it did that impressed audiences at the time What's the best way to put this? Where I'm not presentist. Uh, <laughs> this film's innovations, it's worth to the audience in 1919. They're not as apparent
0: anymore. I guess.
1: Exactly. Hindsight is 2020. No one at the time could have seen the future, but they faded. Yeah. Right. They, there are films that have, I mean, while well, watching this film, I have to admit, like half the time, I was like, I wish I was watching
0: Sophia Coppola's Mary Antoinette. That's another <laughs> and, movie that I was thinking about, uh, Aqua, uh, while I was watching this. I felt like, at least at Marie Antoinette, Whether you like it or not, there's at least something unique that it's trying to do with the fact that we know we have the biopic template there. Oh, totally. And think of it this way, too. Like, this film is unquestionably trying to
1: do something and actually succeeding, right? From the context of Ernst Lubitsch making this film in late 1918, I believe. You know, how can you... Do an Ernst Lubitsch version of a biopic. Well, you make it really sexy. You make <laughs> it you make it kind of uh, scandalous, right? I mean, there's an amazing Krakauer quote about this. In his book, From Gallagher to Hitler, he wrote, Considering the speed with which Lubitsch exchanged murders and tortures for dancing and joking, it is highly probable that his comedies sprang from the same nihilism as his historical dramas.
0: <laughs>
1: the vogue Lubitsch helped to create originated in a blend of cynicism and melodramatic sentimentality. They characterize history as meaningless, an arena reserved for blind and ferocious instincts, a product of devilish machinations, forever frustrating our hopes for freedom and happiness. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not wrong. I mean, it's, I disagree with the thrust of the argument, but it's not, he's not incorrect. I think that's nowhere better expressed than in this film. When I wrote this down in all caps in my notes in my most recent viewing, this film posits that the French Revolution was catalyzed because... The the Harry Liebke character, the lieutenant in this, was pissed because he was essentially rejected by (laughs) Madame Duberry, right? Like uh, in this film, she sparks the French Revolution. Like it's a couple degrees removed, but it's like she turns him down. He's then storming the Bastille. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think Krakauer is kind of totally correct there, where this is history as an outcropping of basically the whims
0: of the aristocrats. Yeah. Yeah, that's always something I find very funny about Luvish because I don't know if uh, he... I don't know. I feel like I know what Luvish wants to say, but I don't quite know if he's entirely successful at it either. It's fine enough for Madame de Berry to be a completely contradictory figure, but when you note that about the Harry Leakey character... Even then, still kind of lost. Yeah, I mean, it's a tremendously
1: convoluted film that goes through like so many. And even the Harry Leadkey character makes no sense in the sense of he's an invention of the screenplay. He's a composite at best. To side note, Harry Leadkey, he is a bit of a bugbear throughout this whole era. I pretty much like almost every consistent member of the Lubitsch Thought Company from this era. But Harry Leadkey, I do not know why he was ever cast in a historical epic or a drama. He plays a very good drunk. And that's it. He's wonderful in The Oyster Princess because he's drunk the entire time. But in this film, he kind of expresses all of the melodramatic shifts of the film by acting like a spoiled five-year-old at all times. And it really makes the French Revolution seem like a bunch of spoiled five-year-olds, which I think is kind of unfair to the French revolutionaries, I think. Back to the, the question of that character, though. Lubitsch is all about boiling things down, or he would kind of become more consciously about this. Boiling things down to the actions of a few characters, right? And weirdly enough, in this, we're really far into that upswing of him scaling up his productions, and that will explode by the time we get to Loves of the Pharaoh, where you have a cast of literally thousands of people battling out in some Berlin quarry pertaining to be Egypt. In this film, though, you do have a cast of hundreds at least. You have some large scenes where they storm the Bastille, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But really, it's all a function of just the bedroom antics of three characters. Really, that's oh, yeah. the entire film is is there, and it feels like we're four years away from Lubitsch realizing that that's all he needs <laughs> he doesn't
0: need the thousands it's interesting because i feel like even at this period in time i think Lubitsch is already pretty well established but uh... I imagine that he still is kind of trying to figure out. And then it's when he started making comedies where I find that he really is at his most fulfilled. Oh, yes. And it's this thing that, I mean, it,
1: this is a refrain I have returned to and will return to in the future. Lubitsch's drama is, I think, most successful when it's filtered through the lens of comedy, to be or not to be. There's a half hour period in that film where there's Nary an laugh and it's great because of its structural framework. Student Prince of Old Heidelberg great but it is a profoundly sad tragic film it's just that it's expressed through almost nothing but comedic beats he has these mechanisms tools and here again you have when it works it works i mean i really do like the scenes when like pola negri is trying to put the wiles on all these guys (laughs) and there are undercurrents of drama and tension but there's the delight in seeing her operate in these scenarios so there are little bits of of wit and mirth here that do work until you get to the second half and it's basically
0: a melodrama parade. <laughs> Once it uh, gets into the melodramatic territory, I just think to myself that this is definitely not Lubitsch's strong suit. I could, you can point to some
1: of his American films as more successful versions of like the melodrama. Yeah. Maybe melodramatic elements, but even something like Lady Windermere's Fan, Forbidden Paradise. Those are delightful films. They're fun, trophy. They're more dramatic. There's more stakes. Yeah. To, personally, than something really silly like Oyster Princess. But yeah, he found a tone. Oh, yeah. What did you think of Emil Yannings in this? Because Emil's uh, an interesting figure in this period. And this is one of his probably more well-known roles in Lubitsch
0: canon. He, I think he's really great in this one. I uh, like the fact that Yannings, whenever I watch him in a lot of uh, Murnau movies or in some Sternberg movies, I always enjoyed the fact that he's a very physical actor. That's where I uh, find he's at his most expressive, especially when you're watching his scenes together with Negri in here. <laughs> I will admit my favorite scene of his in this is when he's dying of smallpox. box. <laughs>
1: I, just love it. <laughs> I love it when Emil Yannings is just completely playing someone who's lost touch with reality. That's when he's at his best. He apparently had a debate with Lubitsch because Lubitsch wanted the character to be much smaller, a little more kind of um, courtly figure. He wanted him to be kind of a, more believable as a diplomat who could keep this palace running. And Yannings wanted him as this giant tragicomic figure, arms flailing. And Yannings won out.
0: I think Yannings is right. Uh, I think he is. <laughs> he's the most entertaining part of this whole thing. Whenever Yannings is in in one of these movies, I find that he's often one of the more entertaining aspects of it. I find that he's great because of how much he overexerts into his physicality. (laughs) A lot of the times I just find it's very funny, but it's also when he's with the right director, it's very effective. And obviously with Lubitsch, it's quite a nice little mix of both, which is why he works for me in this yeah, and you got that. I mean, we're in an interesting place for
1: that sort of thing, right? Because we're in the transition from pantomime acting, body movements, a wide shot to a focus on more facial acting. Still vary by this 2023 standards performative, but comparatively nuanced compared to the pantomime style. Yennings basically seems to have always been based in that pantomime style. It's just he did it really well. I think one of the things that we kind of mistakes we can make while... Talking about, for example, acting styles that are not in vogue is as if the pantomime style was somehow lesser. But there was great practitioners of it, and Yannings was one.
0: Oh yeah, I'm trying to think who else I know uh, did it really well from that time period. I'm not gonna go back to a lot of the uh, silent comedians because I feel like those are just way too obvious. I, I know that there's a few actors in some Griffith movies I could come back to. I would say, I mean, I think Lillian Gish does a, a really great mix of both, and obviously it's present in stuff like *Intolerance* and *Broken Blossoms*, <laughs> which. Broken Blossoms, I uh, obviously have a whole lot of feelings about that myself as, you know, I'm Asian. So.
1: <laughs> we can talk about um, some of the shortcomings in, that, in those regards with this film too. Yeah. <laughs> Certain examples that come to mind for me are actually some of the German expressionist films like Conrad Veidt in Caligari or Mac Schreck in Nosferatu. And Schreck is
0: also one of the best examples
1: of that. Absolutely. And, you know, the great horror actors who, again, were... Created incredible performances from, you know, in those two cases, often their silhouettes. You know, that their faces were secondary to what they were doing with their bodies in ways that deeply unsettle you. And then, you know, by the end of the 20s, that style is basically dead. Comparatively at least. I mean, speaking of like kind of things that evolved throughout this decade that we're in, I mean, you also have the, the continuity editing in this or lack thereof, because we're kind of at the beginning of the arc of Lubitsch fully being influenced by Hollywood. Because what happened in Germany between 1914 and 1918? World War I happened and they banned all American imports of films. So that's part of why Lubitsch even came up, right? Because there was a market. And what happens after that? Well, American films come flooding in. Hollywood exerts massive influence on Germany. So Lubitsch was at the forefront of that cross-pollination. So he begins to study American films and begins to incorporate continuity editing three-point lighting eventually once he moves to America, the less pantomime-style acting and more minimalist sets into his films. And in this film, we can see that where the editing, pacing, and structure are slightly more complex, but it's still very transitional. Where you have scenes where screen direction gets quite confused. You know the scene where um, Louis XV first spies Paul Negri? Try and track the screen direction of where Emilie Anning's is looking and where we think Polonegri is in that scene in the park. And it is actually quite difficult to follow because halfway through the scene, the
0: direction that Yennings looks switches by around 120 degrees. That's the sort of thing that would just uh, drive my directing profs over at Sheridan crazy. (laughs) It's not nearly as distracting as a lot of the non-Lumid Sherman films
1: I've seen from this period. There's some interesting stuff. But it's still a, a, an odd, like, I could not draw the geometric relationships of that scene onto a napkin. I don't really know where Negri is because, again, there's an imperfect deployment of Hollywood continuity here. And I don't think he would really, basically, he wouldn't nail it till he moved to America. But I don't think he really had the expertise around him, maybe, to do that. So it's interesting. Again, no get another example of this film being much more interesting for how it informs the films before and after. Because then you have, I mean, straight after this, you have the doll where... He is openly thumbing his nose at so many Hollywood conventions. Conventions of even what constitutes an Ernst Lubitsch film. That film is so shabby looking. It's designed to look like it was made by Five Girl. Almost that one-off experiment that he'd never followed up on again
0: it was far more successful than this kind of transitional film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Honestly, it was mostly just the party scenes that stood out to me. That's where I was thinking to myself, this is definitely the sort of thing that uh, I would have wanted out of any Lubitsch movie because he's great when it comes to directing the space of a large gathering. You can see a lot of that in stuff like To Be or Not To Be or even in Heaven Can Wait, which I think that one is just about his most gorgeous movie. I just think to myself that it's always those scenes that uh, stand out to me because they are always where Lubitsch gets to show off how lavish he really wants everything to look in his movies. Yeah, you get all those costumes and,
1: I mean, especially his organization of crowds. Oh, gosh, yeah. For me, the best party scene in this movie is the uh, French Revolution, (laughs) where you get the, like, gorgeous costumes and, like, cannons firing, and especially the way he organizes the crowd as this one amalgam. It's beautiful. To me, that resembles his party scenes more than anything.
0: There's also another bit I also wanted to uh, point out. It's the fact that we go right from the death of louis the 15th all the way to the solving the best deal it just uh...
1: yeah in like two minutes and you're like what there was a whole louis the 16th who
0: <laughs> it is interesting that
1: like most of the movie mary antoinette occurs in that two minute period you know when you think about it. that's a big problem with the film it's not necessarily that it's ahistorical and it is very ahistorical i don't care about that it's that if you know even a bit of the history it basically cuts past the most interesting bit of this whole thing. And again, it really does make the French Revolution seem a bit silly.
0: I was just wondering, uh, where is Marie Antoinette going to be playing into this, considering uh, the fact that we don't even, I don't even remember where, if we even saw Louis Sixteenth appear in here at all. <laughs> I think the only time we really encounter any Louis Sixteenth
1: content in this film is when we get a letter from him to Madame du Berry exiling her. Yeah. And she gets <laughs> exiled. And that's basically the last we see of the court. And then, you know, it's just so much of her getting uh, beheaded by the Reign of Terror mob. And so, yeah, it really does feel like an incomplete story and they chose the least interesting parts. (laughs) I do love the Bastille set, though. The red shot with that wonderful kind of, it's forced perspective technically, but it's barely forced perspective shot of the Bastille fortress being overrun. That's incredible, especially when it comes after the, uh, if you've seen the film Carmen, highly odd town square of Paris that really looks like Seville from Carmen. It's basically identical. They redressed the houses, but it's a weirdly provincial-looking place. And then you go to the Bastille Fortress and it's this immense beautiful facade. I mean, I think Kurt Richter's work is, as usual, wonderful. Maybe he might be the key collaborator of this era, although Theodore Sparkle is uh, the cinematographer of this and most of his other films of this era. It was also incredible. He shot virtually every Lubitsch film between I Don't Want to Be a Man and When He Left Berlin. And his work here, I mean, I'm talking a lot about stuff that was mentioned in Thompson's book, but I can't help myself. The specific pattern of lighting used in this film is a great example of the typical framework used in German films of this era, right before Hollywood became a T-influence, and that's the V-shaped lighting pattern. So three-point lighting, we're probably all familiar with that. You have a key light off one side of the camera, fill light, softer, dimmer on the other side, and a backlight, usually rigged above the set, and in a Hollywood film, you'd have dozens of these fixtures, kind of boutique lighting parts of the space, creating many distinct three point setups or one big wash that fills the whole set, separates actors from the background, prevents harsh shadows. Now, here's the thing about German lighting. Didn't do this. You didn't have backlights, So what you have is, think of a V shape where the corner of the V, the lower point is the camera and they extend kind of left and right to the back of the set. You have a row of lights emanating out from the camera left and right. It's basically flat lighting that creates many, many shadows when actors approach the walls of the set. And then when they approach the camera, you have this infamous dark zone where you have characters suddenly fall into shadow if they come too close to where the camera is because the lights aren't actually illuminating that part of the space. And this is a great example. Like watch any scene where characters are near walls. You'll see up to six shadows. It's all hard fixtures. And this is on top of the fact that this was entirely shot on open air sets in (laughs) the interiors, right? So you had glass studios to let in daylight. So you have this combination of the V-shaped lighting and daylight. This is, to me, I think, one of the best examples of that very, very specific German style that has basically never been used since.
0: It was nice seeing how uh, along the stuff that I uh, remember very distinctly out of his American work still feels like it was being developed, especially in here. It's interesting to see the stuff that continued to develop. You have
1: things like his way of using doors here is not anywhere close to what he would do in like the marriage circle. (laughs) But you still have this way of demarking spaces and of even expressing character through their relationship with doors. But it's also interesting to see the contrast, right? Like this lighting style bears no resemblance to what he would do at any point, starting with Rosita. Oh yeah. Actually, even starting
0: with Loves of the Pharaoh, that film had a very, very different lighting style than this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everything that I love about this is stuff that I feel like I've enjoyed more in his later movies. so yeah. That's a good way to put
1: it, actually, because I think part of why something like The Oyster Princess really resonates now, the good things in that, Lubitsch never really returned to. Uh-huh. Right. Kind of returned to them in the wildcat, but that film is its own bizarre thing. What you can get out of The Oyster Princess is very different than what you get out of Trouble in Paradise. Oh, yeah. But... All the stuff that Madame Duberry does pretty well, Lady Windermere's fan does incredibly well. (laughs) Even (laughs) uh, Forbidden Paradise does it way better. that's just one Negri film from the Hollywood era. There is one shot that I really liked in this. And that's when you have the shot of an outside observer spotting Polonegri at a party. Lubitsch really started playing with mats in... Oyster Princess. He'd done some before, but he really goes wild with it there. And he continues it here where you have this diamond mat on a character looking at Polinigri at a party and then you cut to her, but then the top half of the frame has been matted off. So all you see is her legs and then it slides upwards so it reveals the rest of her. So it's this very sophisticated way of expressing one, the character's gaze, and two, expressing something about the Madame Duvier character, right? You're expressing how she positions herself, what she uses to kind of in this case, basically ensnare someone so she can continue social climbing. And so that was a lovely little detail. And that's something that little sliding mat trick he would return to, to even greater effects, especially in later Wittenbeer's fan, which has an... Incredible sliding mad shot. So there's little moments like that where I'm like, okay, he's really experimenting here in ways that would pay off to much greater dividends in later films. Um, one thing I also want to mention is the score. The score on the restored version that's present on the Masters of Cinema release of this film is among the best of this era in terms of Lubitsch films. And to me, it's a bit cruel that the next film that I'm going to talk about, The Doll, has the worst. Because I think... <laughs> I wish those were reversed. I wish the best films got the best scores, but sometimes you can't. But this was lovely. It's sweeping. It's, you know, a big romantic score that totally fits the era. It fits the milieu
0: and it's as melodramatic as the film. It feels like it's also contradicting itself, just like Madame du Barry herself, which is what I think makes it perfect for this movie.
1: Yeah, exactly. When Madame du Barry is an authoritarian going, put down the plebes, the score is this big thundering thing. And then when she's uh, the babe in the woods, it's just like, light dainty romantic score so it perfectly fits even the flaws of this film. So a bunch of historical stuff because this film it's impossible to overstate just how important this film was for the career. It was purchased by Associated First National who paid somewhere from thirty dollars to $60,000 for the rights. They retitled it Passion. Added a kind of apparently a recurring motif where as Madame and lovers perish like candles go out and apparently only candelabra which is fun. But The big deal here is that this was Lubitsch's breakout in North America. But there was so much anti-German sentiment in North America at the time that First National Pictures struggles to find a theater for it. The Strand Theater in New York refused to run the picture. Apparently a string of theaters refused to run the picture. They had difficulty finding a place entirely because they don't want to play a film by the hated Germans. It finally opens in, I believe, New Jersey in December 1920. And the opening night ad bills it as the most important film event of the year. It opens finally. The articles in the year are super interesting. Like there's a New York Times article that claims the film is of Italian origin. It looks like First National was kind of trying to hide the fact that it was German as much as they could. And the New York Times also, as part of the review, they state that the origin of passion is to be excused because its star is a pole and its subject matter is French, which I think is hilarious. Variety loved it, but they also credited the film to someone named Emil Subic, which i That is, again, deeply funny. But there was a ton of controversy and backlash, especially after this led to a torrent of Lubitsch's films being released in the U.S. You had Anna Bullen, made over a year later, but hastily released in early 21. You have Carmen that was, again, made two years earlier, but released later that year. You know, within a year, Lubitsch was a major American brand name director. He was one of the most famous directors in the world suddenly. But then you had uh, pieces like in James Quirk's publication, PhotoPlay. I'm going to read this whole thing because this is so entertaining. You're going to love this. The entire German industry has produced so far, as America is concerned, one 100% financially successful picture, passion, and then three or four mediocrely successful pictures. The reason, according to PhotoPlay, Germans enjoy horror and suffering on screen. They enjoy eating, drinking, and ordering people, especially your women, about... Moreover, they revel in watching other people's emotions put in a test tube with a residue of nastiness at the bottom. Americans, on the other hand, believe in the eternal destiny of splendid youth in the glory of motherhood in the square deal in the equality of sexes and equal opportunities for all. It's funny reading that. I cannot help but think of uh, Design for Living and the line in that film.
0: Immorality may be fun." But it isn't fun enough to take the place of 100% virtue and three square meals a day.
1: You had this um, incredible contrast, it seems, between the rapturous public reception of the film and a certain element that either wanted to diminish the fact that it was a German production or just outright was anti-German imports. So you had various organizations that tried to ban foreign films in Hollywood because they were throwing Hollywood folks out of work. (laughs) You have this fascinating kind of year or two period where... Suddenly, the German cinema crashes on the shores of North America, and it's like this little British invasion type thing where it's the talk of the town until they basically hire all of the German talent and bring them over. So yeah, as a result of this, it brought him to the attention of Mary Pickford, United Artists, who were the group that would eventually bring him over, brought him to the attention of all the major players in Hollywood. From then on, he was probably the single most famous director in the world. Starting in late 1920, things were never the same, and that's what enabled him to go to Hollywood and make the film we all remember, Broken Lullaby.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's another one that I uh, know I've I've wanted to see for quite a while, but I just, uh, (laughs) I could just never find it because most of the time when I watched a lot of his stuff, I, uh, Kept relying on whether or not my uh, local library had it. Ah, yes. They only really had all the big hits. So that's how I got to see, of course, Shop Around the Corner, To Be or Not To Be, Trouble in Paradise, and Ninochka. Didn't even get to see all the other stuff until much, much later. That's interesting um, because there's a lot to be said about the way that availability plays into these films'
1: reputations, right? Oh, yeah. Trouble in Paradise was one of the first major films of his that was just widely available on home video. And Student Prince and Old Heidelberg is my favorite of his silent films. And to me, it's mostly forgotten because it has never been available on home video. But
0: apparently, there was a laser disc at some point. So what I'd like to ask you is, as far as Lubitsch goes, what's your sort of relationship to his films? I think the very first one that really grabbed me, per se, was The Shop Around the Corner, because I saw that one when I played on the Turner Classic movies when I was like, what, 13, 14 years old. They're playing a lot of Christmas-themed movies at around the time, and I remember hearing about this one because I saw that, oh, James Stewart's in this. And I, of course, I loved him and it's a wonderful life. Mm. As a young kid, it left a huge impression on me. And then I uh, did a lot more research. And then I saw that it apparently got remade as You've Got Mail by Nora Ephron. (laughs) But uh, to me, it's this person that that still remains the definitive version of that story. I think it's between that and To Be or Not To Be uh, as my favorites right now. The thing about Shop Around the Corner is that it's a
1: movie that kind of disintegrates in the last half in the most beautiful way. <laughs> all the conflict just slowly subsides. By the end of the film, there's not really any sort of driving dramatic spine to it. It's just you're living with these characters in a way that doesn't quite feel like a hangout film. It's melancholy. It's just very sweet, you know? <laughs> it's a, it's one of the films, I think it's, of all the projects that Lubitsch did, reportedly might be the one that he cared about the most. He actually signed a deal to make Ninochka just so he could make Chopper on the corner, which is unusual for him to take that deal. And so it feels like one where he's really trying to do something that's not commercial at all, really. It's I mean it is a film that did well, made a profit. But it's not a film that feels designed to conform to any known structure. It is one of the most odd romantic comedies I've ever seen. In terms of the, again, what are the acts in that film? What's the climax? Climax occurs halfway through, essentially. And that even then isn't really, that's one character's journey, not even the central couple. Are there any other,
0: any moments that you go, okay, only he could have done this? Uh, To Be or Not To Be, obviously. Oh, yes. In high school, I watched that one back to back with the producers and uh, I thought that they honestly uh, make a pretty perfect double bill. (laughs) That is a good double bill. My kind of classic double bill to be or not to be is
1: Grand Budapest Hotel, because I think they're both incredible statements on fascism.
0: I uh, just thought to myself that uh, with both the To Be or Not To Be and the producers, I just look at them and I think to myself, you know, these are the sort of movies that only Jewish filmmakers can make work. (laughs) Especially when you consider how they engage with the horrors of Nazism in a really darkly funny way. It's a question of who has the right to make that story.
1: And I think it's kind of unquestionable that Ernst Lubitsch has that right. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's also in this is well-trodden territory at this point. But that whole question of why
0: can't we make a film like Producers Today? You know, it's
1: self-explanatory.
0: You can't make the Producers Today because it was already made in 1968. so, <laughs> And it was relevant in a very specific way to the people who made it. Oh, yeah
1: in a way that it cannot be relevant now. I mean, that's what's to me beautiful about all of these films that we're discussing in the show is that they could only have been made at the time they were made, which is a really obvious tautological statement. But Madam Dewberry, it gets at how we watch these, right? We can always look at these films and go, oh, this isn't working for me. This is dramatically inert. You know, this character makes no sense, which is valid. But there's the other side of that coin, which is look at how this film is lit. Look at how the sets are designed. Look at how the actors are directed. Look at how that expresses the way that certain historical forces coincided at a certain point and how that this film as an expression of that could not have been made a month later than it was. Could have not been made a month earlier. This film could only been made when it was made. So to me, that's the beautiful part of it. We're watching one of the clearest examples. Cinema is such a good way for different cultures to express themselves. And the culture of Weimar Germany in early mid 1919 is so fascinating that this thing has such inherent, inherent worth to me.
0: For you, where do you find uh, Lubitsch to be at his very best? Because you've already talked about my own personal favorites. How about, uh, I want to hear from you now. (laughs) Lubitsch is a director,
1: I think, of particular interest to me. I find him compelling in a way that I don't usually interface with directors. And that is part of what draws me to him. My other favorite director
0: circa now is still probably Robert Altman. Alton, I think, was one of the first uh, filmmakers that I uh, really jumped after when I was in high school. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Alman
1: was a hard-earned love for me. I did not understand it for years when I was a teenager. Eventually, I watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I'm like, aha! Uh-huh. But. The other directors I love and admire, right? Abel Gantz, Wong Kar Wai, Kelly Reichardt. The list goes on and on and on. And long story short, like what unites all those directors is very, very specific and ambitious deployments of film form, particularly visually. Which no coincidence, I work in cinematography. Of course, I like that. Like I love Altman's zooms. I love the way that he situates you as a viewer. I love Abel Gantz's methods of montage. But Lubitsch, none of that kind of applies. Like if I were to say, like formally, which Lubitsch speaks to me the most. It might honestly be something like The Oyster Princess or The Wildcat, and those are not necessarily my favorite of his films. My favorite of his films tend to be ones where I'm just swept up in the humanity and emotion of it, which is unusual for me to say. I'm not a very emotional person. When I watch To Be or Not To Be, I feel something deep inside me, stirring that I don't get anywhere else. When I watch The Merry Widow, I feel an excitement and an exuberance that, yes, I can chalk up the form, and that actually might be my favorite of his films formally. I forgot about that one. That was exciting as all hell. but. That's not what excites me about that movie. What excites me is, I don't know, this aura he creates. You know, it's often called the Lubitsch touch. And my own version of that is the feeling I get when I watch his films of being lighter than air. And no one else does that. And I'm part of why I want to do this podcast is I want to try and deconstruct that. What do I like about Lubitsch? Because it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. I can pin down what I like about John Ford better, and even he's a little difficult. What I like about him is kind of indefinable, and that's part of what, that only makes me like him more.
0: Honestly, that's how I uh, feel about most uh, most of Lubitsch's work. I think that some of the only directors that jump out at me in that same manner. I know, of course, in high school that Kurosawa was a big one that uh, really stuck with me, but he's a pretty obvious one, I, I feel. I think Hawks is also a pretty good example of that, too. Hawks is a good
1: example, right? His best films, at least the ones I enjoy the most, are ones where you kind of just are swept up in the giddiness of a bunch of people hanging out it's hangout cinema mostly i mean that's real bravo oh yeah i mean i've been probably as a tangent but my current quiet man blitz has really kind of crystallized for example what i like about Ford, and i think really there's two things one is that he's he's one of the best composers of frames in history i mean in any medium ever i can't think of another filmmaker who quite gets me the way he does there's ozu of course and Taddy. the other thing that gets me with his films is that his best films the ones i like the most they're never settled with me The Quiet Man is, I think, a great example of that. And so is The Searchers, where morally and ethically, those films are really messy. Yeah. (laughs) I can watch them and feel unproblematically good about them. But at the same time, it's impossible to dismiss them in the way I would most Griffiths.
0: At least anything with Ford, you feel like he's trying to come to grips with the fact that uh, he's already engaging with really rough waters, whereas Griffith is kind of somebody who already knows that this is the sort of ideology he wants to convey. (laughs) I'm probably giving Griffith a short shrift on some of his other work, But Ford, the thing is like Quiet
1: Man, for example, the rap on that movie is that it's a film about, you know, wherein John Wayne beats up Marina Harrow. The thing about that film is that It's about someone trying to escape one type of toxic masculinity and confronting another and kind of being cajoled into playing his part of especially living out Maureen O'Hara's kind of absurd fantasy of him being tough and rough with her, which is the subtext of that all. (laughs) The fact that both those things are simultaneously true, I don't know where I land on that. I don't know what I can endorse and what I can't. I mean, but... That whole question there is what I find fascinating about it. It's why I watched it four times and not I Yeah. Also the compositions. But same thing with The Searchers, right? Where that film's relationship with the American myth and race is complicated and messy and obviously could not be made now and shouldn't be made now. But The Searchers are the maggots that they use on a wound. To bring out the wounds so they can do something about it, right? That's The Searchers. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The Searchers is maggots. So that, I mean, I've been having very complex thoughts about John Ford because of all that. But anyways, Lubitsch is not so complex with me. I just can watch his films and love them unproblematically,
0: except when you have Victor Jansen in blackface. That's a problem. Oh, gosh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And it's like, you're reminding me why I just cannot come to grips with Broken Blossoms by Griffith. The short story that it's based on has, it already has a racist slur in the title, (laughs) And obviously, you have Richard Barthelmus playing a Chinese character, and which <laughs> it's a movie that was praised at the time for being progressive when it came to the portrayal of race relations back in the day. But uh, <laughs> if you look at it now, it's uh, <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> it's one
1: of those things where it's a film like that or Man in Dewberry, for example, where, again, you have, you have Victor Jansen, who is an actor I mostly really like in other things, giving his worst performance. In any Levitch film, it's one of those things where the idling state of how things were done back then in his portrayal of Black people in this case was just malicious as an idling thing. It's tough, right? And, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I got asked basically, how can you recommend a film like this And that's an element like that? And that's a completely valid question and one that I have no good
0: answer for. When people ask me about uh, the searchers and why I still always recommend it, despite uh, how people feel about John Wayne. At least you get the sense that John Ford is the director who wants to come to grips with that.
1: I think there's a kind of a strand of thought that basically films, especially people going into films that are from an era that they didn't experience personally, which are obviously is both of us too, people tend to, on first blush, see the films as extensions of modern mainstream ideas of what the mainstream ideas were in that era. So for example, The Searchers, it's very easy to go in that film and to interpret the ways in which it is trying to grapple with things like race and genocide and war and read them purely as a endorsement of the things it is depicting, right? Because I think that we're kind of trained to see almost, especially for American films, to only see them as self-reflexive when that started to become more foregrounded, particularly in the late 60s, right? With the new Hollywood movement. Those films are obviously satirized. I mean, Taxi Driver is about a horrible person, but clearly it is not endorsing that. I think that's not controversial to say. It is clearly there's an authorial distance between Scorsese and Schrader and the character. But you go back 23 more years to The Searchers and suddenly it's because, I mean, there's a few elements here. One is that the 50s are a mistier decade now, right? They're a decade that is less well-documented as a countercultural thing, but you have a film that is made by someone who is profoundly ambivalent (laughs) and complex Mm. in their beliefs, making a very dark, nasty film that is grappling with that, that's tougher for people to deal with, understandably, I think. Even though, again, I love The Searchers, partially because it makes me feel horrible when I watch it. Yeah. (laughs) If I feel unsettled, I feel like I have to question and really examine my own beliefs when I see it because it interfaces with them in such a complex and disturbing way. But again, it's also tempting to just for a layperson to watch it and go, "Wow, that's that's horrible."
0: It's just very exciting filmmaking, which is exactly oh, yeah. why I feel like it has the effect of making you question why am I actually enjoying this in that matter. Truth sure. be told, I feel like that's exactly what it is that keeps me coming back to it, and I always have uh-huh. something. I always have something to say about it in turn. Yeah, I mean, there's two reasons I watch The Searchers. One is. It's the most beautiful movie ever
1: made in Monument Valley. (laughs) You know, there is that. And two, it's because, yeah, exactly. It roils me. It's very easy to watch something that just reaffirms and says our beliefs back at us or to watch something where we can go, that is bullshit, (laughs) right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I would never say it's easy to watch Birth of a Nation, but in terms of my own relationship
0: with Birth of a Nation, it's simple. That's a hateful, horrible film. (laughs) right because yeah, birth of a nation it's a movie that was made to glorify the ku klux klan whereas the searchers it knows that ethan is just straight up evil it doesn't even pretend otherwise <laughs> and yet it has oversights like the character of look right i mean that is a profoundly difficult
1: character to grapple with for anyone and so the film feels like an incomplete project it's a film that contradicts itself in a lot of ways and again that's part of what artistically i think makes it so essential oh god yeah, absolutely <laughs> And, uh, you know, throughout this, especially this Berlin era of Lubitsch, we have not only, I mean, we love to celebrate, like, I don't want to be a man, which is immensely, even if unwittingly, but I think a lot of it is intentional, progressive film. You know, the film is one of the key queer texts of its era. And then you have something, 11 years later, you have The Love Parade, which is a full-throated, endorsement of male superiority right? no, 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 no. and then you have all these ones in between where you have i mean you have victor Jensen in blackface you have very questionable orientalist depictions of places like egypt a couple of times where you know you you look at it from the perspective of 1921 uh loves the pharaoh you had the um with the egyptomania craze going on in western europe right where everyone was really into egypt and that kind of climax when they opened up uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. <laughs> So it's all very understandable from that point of view, but you watch it now. It's a hundred year old film of a bunch of Germans dressing up as Egyptians and that doesn't quite play the same now. (laughs) Trying to grapple that. It's been an interesting journey that I don't think it's in me to handle perfectly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. I feel like it's also a lot more fulfilling coming back to a lot of these movies, especially when uh, we're in an age where um, most of the more popular movies are just the same old, same old, superhero stories, you know, with good, triumphing over evil, and all that sort of thing. I feel like when people watch a lot of those, they just come into them thinking they want to be entertained by uh, knowing that what they uh, have in their mind is already reassured. Mm -hmm. But something like The Searchers and a lot of these films, like Taxi Driver, everything from that period, they're also at least challenging you to uh, re-examine what it is you find exciting about a lot of the stuff that you see in a lot of uh, pop culture, especially now.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's also true that most of what we see now, let's add 100 years to it, um, uh-huh. will probably seem <laughs> very regressive. I hope it seems regressive in 100 years. That's great. I, I want yeah. the next generation to be more progressive than me. And there's a way of engaging with old media that basically you stand on a hill and go and you declare moral superiority. <laughs> Right. And uh, there's more interesting ways to deal with the past, I think, without risking endorsing things that shouldn't be endorsed in this day and
0: age. (laughs) And I feel like that we could have a lot more interesting conversations that engage with how we take to film as a medium on the whole. So I have a question for you. Uh Is there anywhere that the audiences can find you? Anything online where you're like, is there
1: a one stop shop for your stuff? What would you like to plug? This is your opportunity to, to plug whatever.
0: Um, sure, you can find me on Instagram at Instagram.com slash without a cause. On Twitter at FirewalkwithJB. I am inactive on the site at the moment, but that's only because of my semester right now. You can also find my writing on Cinema for the Spectrum and on FilmCred. You'll also see me uh, contribute every now and then to Liwanag I am in the process of editing my uh, thesis film. We uh, shot this uh, last weekend and it was a really fun, although exhausting time for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for kind of kicking off season two proper. Hey, thanks for having me here, Devin.
1: Next week, Tim Brighton joins us to discuss the doll. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. Head over to www.ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.